0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Cloud Architects podcast. I'm Chris Goosen, and as always, I'm joined by Nicholas Blank. Um, Mr. Nick, you you have a different background today, and you guys are always making fun of me for having different backgrounds. But, but you have a different background today. So
1: I do have a different background, and it's because I'm recording from my home studio, which sounds impressive, but you don't know what's in front of me. And as long as whatever behind me looks good, I think we're OK.
0: Right, as long as you've hidden everything under the desk, it's all good. That's that's, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> yes. right. I have um, an
1: array of children and dogs standing in front of me going and trying <laughs> to keep quiet as best as they can.
0: Well, we're very excited, exciting episode today. And I you know, I'm gonna let Nick oh, yeah. introduce our guest, because I think Nick has been bouncing off the walls all week about this one. So I'm gonna I'm gonna not take his uh, his thunder here and let him let him introduce our guest and, and uh we have an exciting topic to talk about today. We do indeed, and this is something that I've only been quoting
1: for a good 15 years at least. And it's wonderful to meet one of your intellectual heroes and at least the person who originated the work that you've spent a lot of your career trying to implement and speaking about. So today we have the pleasure of speaking to John Kindervag, the creator of the, the Zero Trust Framework. And John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. John, we have many, many, many questions to ask you. And I think we just want to start in the beginning. And you originated the Zero Trust framework. And do you want to tell us why? And obviously, we had the the problem of data centers way back then. And tell us about your thinking and how you got to the solution of the three principles that we
2: use. Well, yeah, you know, I come from a background as a, as a network engineer and then a security engineer, security architect, pen tester, all the jobs that you do to learn about this business. And I used to install firewalls. And if you'll remember, and it's still true today, firewalls had a trust model built into them where there was you know, at least two interfaces, the yeah. untrusted interface uh, that was going to the evil internet and the trusted interface that went to your internal network and you gave the trusted interface a a level of 100. It's 100% trusted. And then the external interface was zero. And then every other interface had another number between zero and 100 and they couldn't be the same. And that was the trust model. It's called the adaptive security algorithm. And I hated it because what it said was that you didn't need to have a rule for outbound traffic because you're going from a high trust level to a low trust level. And anytime you're doing that, you don't need a rule. And I would keep trying to put rules in place because I was worried about data exfiltration and I kept getting in trouble for going against what the vendor had said. And I said, this is silly. There is no such thing as trust in the digital world. Uh, We don't need a trust flag to move packets from point A to point B. All of the trust levels should be the same. It should be zero. And that's where it comes from. How much trust should there be in a digital system? Zero, right? Because trust is binary. You either completely trust somebody or you don't. And it's really a human emotion, right? It's a human emotion that's been injected into digital systems for no reason at all. So my goal was if we could eliminate that, then that would force people to put policy in place that would benefit the organization. And it's really that simple. So when I got to Forrester Research in 2008, I was allowed to explore that. I don't think I would have been allowed to explore that concept if I wouldn't have gone to someplace like Forrester at the time that I went to Forrester. And I spent two years of of doing primary research, talking to people all over the world, trying to see what holes were there, what I needed to to look at. And, uh, and then I published the first ever report called New More Chewy Centers in September of 2010, and I published the second report called Build Security Into Your Network's DNA, the Zero Trust Network Architecture on how you should oh. do it uh, in November of 2010. So those, two first, those first two reports came very, very quickly, uh, 13 years ago, you know, about this time of year. So uh, I've, been, I've been on this journey for a long, long time. And I continue on it, and I suspect I'll be on it uh, you know, for as long as I'm breathing. Mm,
1: mm, mm. What, what a great story,
0: Chris!
2: No, I was just going to say I think uh,
0: we we seem to have a bit of a theme in our episodes lately. We we're reminiscing about the days of old, right? Um yes. and, and, and just thinking about you know dinosaur stories. I think as we as we call them, right. Thinking about how we used to do things. Now, I, I think what's interesting is that you did all of this work such a, I would say a long time ago, right? 13 years is a relatively long time ago in technical terms in technology terms. And it's only really the last probably what five years or something like that, that we've really seen a lot of traction um, in the industry with, with zero trust and where it's actually almost become a bit, bit bit too buzzworthy, hasn't it? Because, you know, vendors are starting to look at this and go, well, we have zero trust. Come give us your money and we'll give you zero trust.
1: We'll um, sell you some zero trust
2: there. Well, and and zero trust for a long time was an iceberg. What you saw publicly was very small, and what was happening down below the scenes was was very big. And I used to, some of us used to joke uh, because I I worked on all of the early zero trust networks around the world, and I went around the world, uh, you know, doing that. And we used to joke that zero trust was like Fight Club. The first rule was you don't talk about it. <laughs> so people weren't talking about it. And what changed was the OPM data breach, if you remember that in the US, where the secret clearance, the, the, the information about people with secret clearance, 22 million people, uh, was stolen by an adversarial nation state. And as a result of that, the United States House of Representatives did a very deep investigative report and in that report they asked that all uh federal government agencies be told that they need to adopt a zero trust architecture and uh, in fact a, a man named representative Jason Shafus who was the chairman of the Oversight and Government Reform Committee of the United States House of Representatives at that time wrote a bylined article about zero trust which this had never happened before where a sitting member of congress wrote about cybersecurity, and he said this zero trust would have profoundly limited the attacker's ability to move within opm's network and access such sen- sensitive data so the opm breach which got the head of opm fired directly led to the presidential executive order in 2021 where He, uh, talking about cybersecurity modernization, said all government agencies should move towards adopting zero-trust architecture, which led to the OMB, Office of Management and Budget uh, Guidance Document M-2209, which is the, the detailed document that says you have to do it. So now every federal government agency has a zero trust program management office, a zero trust program manager, they have budget allocated to it. So of course the vendors are gonna come in and say, if you buy our product, you'll be all zero trusty. Now I will say, and I work at a vendor, right? That is involved in a zero trust ecosystem, but there's nothing that you can buy that will, that, that is an easy, easy button in terms of, of one thing and you're done, right? Zero trust isn't difficult. Um, people make it more complex than it needs to be, but it's also not a product. It's a strategy designed to help you understand what you need to do from a cybersecurity perspective and resonate up to the highest levels of an organization so that you can change the incentive structure. That's what president Biden did. He changed the incentive structure from you guys can't talk about it at all, all to everybody talk about it all the time. Right. Uh, and, and do it. And so that incentives are really, really important in cybersecurity. And there's a misaligned incentive structure in a lot of organizations that lead to these significant cybersecurity incidents.
1: I love what you just said about incentive structure, because one of the things we struggle with is that security tends to be the forgotten stepchild of IT, and IT is not represented at the board, and then security becomes really relevant when there's something that happens to the business like a breach. And this is a very, very real struggle where I talk to CISOs just about for a living at the moment, and a lot of the complaints are similar when I start by asking, what kind of board representation do you have in order to affect your role?
2: Well, you're exactly right. Uh, you know These things catch people off guard, right? If, if you're a big company who's had a data breach, that caught the CEO off guard. And if, if it didn't get them fired, which normally it does, it certainly damaged their reputation, uh, damaged the stock. The stock always comes back. People like, like to tell me, oh, John, you know the stock always comes back, so it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, well, buy low, sell high. Of course it comes back. But that doesn't mean there isn't significant damage. And now you see with the SEC uh, coming out and, and and becoming pretty litigious. You know, uh, Joe Sullivan over at Uber, Tim over at Solar Winds. Uh, you know, we got to get ahead of this game somehow in in the overall cyber world to figure out how how we incentivize people to do the right thing first of all, and then uh, how we allow them to do the right thing and fund the right thing. And, and then who has to take responsibility for these uh, events? So I, I tell people all the time, I wouldn't be a CISO today. Mm. Uh, that's just an awful job. It's paperwork. And, and you're the guy who ends up with the tracks of the bus mm. uh, going round and round on your back. Right.
0: It's a good point though, because I think a lot for a lot of governments, and we're seeing this in Australia, right? Where the, the, the government saying, "Well, we have to somehow make put, make someone accountable for this," and so the finger gets pointed at the CISO, right? And the, and yeah, and you know, legislation is now being brought in to say, "Well, you know, it's the CISO's role." It's the CISO, well, is it really? I mean, I you know, I don't. I agree with you. Right? It's it's not really a job that I want because uh yeah. The well, anyway, um, I was gonna I was gonna ask you um where we are today. I mean, do you think the the lack of awareness, if we can call it that, or the lack of adoption. Do you think it's a it's a confusion a confusion thing, or do you think it's lack of funding, um, you know, funding understanding? What do you What do you think is sort of preventing everyone from just saying, you know, what this is this is the right answer, let's go and let's go and get it done?
2: There's a lot of that's not the way we've always done it before, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of reticence there. There's a lot of fear that. If it goes wrong, something goes wrong, I'm going to have to take the blame. So again, it goes back to incentives. Um, and it's the fact that a lot of these people don't have any power to affect change. No. So I was just in New York City and, and the CISO was very, very iffy. Oh, this is too hard, can't be done, blah, blah, blah. Well, the CIO was in the room and I kind of looked over and... Made a couple of comments. Yeah, no, of course we can do all these things in parallel. Yeah, you know, but everybody's afraid of of kind of stepping out and 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 doing you know making the first move, right? And so we have to have a way to take away that fear so that people can do their job, empowered to do the right thing for the organization, hmm. and they know what to, is the right thing to do, but they're they're afraid, right? People live in fear in a lot of these organizations. As one person said, uh, one oopsie negates a 1,000 attaboys. And I thought that, that was last week. <laughs> you know, one oopsie negates a 1,000 attaboys. So you're doing great, you're doing great. Oh, you did that one bad thing. Now, you know, we're <laughs> going to fire you. Uh, and so people are concerned about their jobs, as they rightly should be. And and until we we say, yeah, mm-hmm. mistakes... Uh, happen, right? I, I once did a, I was once involved in a speaking engagement with the guy from Apollo uh, 13, you know, the guy who in the movie says, uh, failure is not an option. Well, in talking to him, failure was an option. In fact, failure was probably the best option and, that they were going to get, but he was just trying to motivate people. wasn't like he thought, well, for sure, if I just say that, that we're going to Uh, We're going to fix everything. They got really, really lucky, right? By the skin of their teeth. But sometimes failure um, is an option. And sometimes uh, doing things that are pretty drastic are the best option. So we're coming up, you know, it's Thanksgiving here in the U.S. And we have a thing called Black Friday, uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Thursday. And cybersecurity, in my estimation, begins Black Friday of 2016 when the target breach happened. and I I say everything prior to that is BT before target and we're actually year here in the year uh, what year was that? I, I think it was 2013. I think we're in the year 1080. Uh, don't have my wow. mouth in front of me, right? We're, our industry is only 10 years old because mm. it was 10 years ago that the for the first time the CEO of a major organization got fired because something that IT did right? And the only thing that IT can do to get the CEO fired is to allow a data breach. And if there is a data breach in your organization, you have policies in place that allowed it to happen. I like to say that all bad things happen inside the allow rule, right? Policy is binary. All we can do is allow or deny. And we allow way too much bad stuff because we're afraid we might stop the good stuff. And that's Mm -hmm. the fundamental problem. And we need to, to, to stop that particular thing, and we're seeing some of that in cloud too, where we're seeing. I know of one data breach where a lot of bad things happened, and when you read the the legal documents, you can see that uh, somebody thought security was slowing down DevOps. So we're just going to give everybody who has a domain credential access to this uh, important data store inside of one of the public clouds, and one of those people was malicious and did bad things and they didn't need, they weren't on a project where they needed to have access to that data, but Hey, we're just going to open it up to everybody. Cause we want speed, speed, speed. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the DevOps people, I always joke they're the Ricky Bobbies uh, of IT. They just want to go fast, right? Uh, shake and bake. They got a cougar sitting next to them. I, I want to go fast. You guys familiar with the movie, Ricky Bobby. I love that
0: movie. I watched it just like a week ago. So that's why I'm chuckling.
2: So, so you know, and, and it's just because I remember talking to a, 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 a head of, of a development team, you know, I said, what are you doing about cybersecurity in your product? Well, nothing. Mm. Well, why not? Because I, I, I don't have any KPIs related to that. I have to push 12 new revs a day. That's all I care about. Well, what if there's a data breach? Well, I'll be gone. I'm only going to be at this job for 18 months, you know, at most. So, you know, wow. I'm moving up the ladder well, okay, that's a perverse incentive that actually caused a pretty significant uh, event.
1: Mm. Mm. I hear where you're coming from, from, from an incentive point of view, and I'd love to hear your thoughts around how Zero Trust is moving now that we have virtually ubiquitous attack surface with cloud workloads.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think trying to control this the uh, the the attack surface is a fool's errand. I consider the attack surface much like the universe. It's always expanding, right? Yeah. And uh, so what what zero trust has in it with the the main comment, and you know, I was appointed to the president's uh, the president of the United States NSTAC National Telecommunication National Security Telecommunications Advisory Council. Got to take a deep breath. Subcommittee on Zero Trust and Trusted Identity Access in 2021. So that was a subcommittee for the NSTAC. We issued a report to the president on that in 2022. Uh, you should send that out to your listeners. And that defines what Zero Trust is. That's the definitive document. It's on CISA's website, was sponsored by the president in the United States. And it had, you know, the NSA, that it had DISA, it had um, CISA, it had uh chase cunningham dr zero trust uh, my my guy who followed me up at forrester it had nist it had you know all and a lot of uh, big vendors so we can say authoritative that's what it is and the fundamental concept that i documented there was a, was an idea that i came up with a long time ago called a protect surface mm. instead of worrying about the attack surface let's define a, t- a protect surfaces so protect surfaces are the concept that I can shrink the attack surface down orders of magnitude to something very small and easily known called a protect surface and segment that away from everything mm-hmm. else and and write policy around it. And now I'm controlling an individual, what is known as a DAS element. So DAS is data, applications, assets, or services, an easy to remember uh, mnemonic that helps you know what you need to put into a protect surface. So you put a single DAS element into a single protect surface and you build out your zero trust environment, whether it's in the cloud, on-premise, it doesn't matter. Protect surfaces are independent of the location of compute so that we can, we can build these out and they become three things. They can become incremental, we're doing them one at a time, iterative, one after another, and therefore it's non-disruptive because the most I can screw up is, is one protect surface. And so by looking at it that way, we can really change the dynamics. So if you if you do credit card processing, I'm, I'm a former QSA. I used to do a lot of work in PCI. I learned how to protect a single DAS element, a binary data string called a personal account number that we colloquially call PCI data. And so if, I'm, if I need to protect my PCI data store, I put all my PCI infrastructure into a single protect surface i segment that off i have rules allow only rules that allow only certain uh, users or resources to access that protect surface and now the 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 friction of getting to that is really really high if you're unauthorized to do that right and so you can get into these these cool things where where you'll see it happening in real life i mean i, I you know, I left uh, Forrester went to Palo Alto networks for four years uh, as the field CTO. then I mm-hmm. went to a company called ontouit, a Dutch managed services company where where we built a, a zero trust focused managed service. and then I came over here to Illumio to re-engage with the segmentation stuff that I started talking about in two thousand ten. But each one of those things are are a conscious part of my own zero trust journey to, push the envelope of how we can use technology and build these things more easily. And in the managed service, we had so such visibility, we could see what was happening. And, and we never in anything that we managed, we never had an actual ransomware outbreak, for example, because there were no rules that allowed the command and control server on the public internet on an unknown IP address with no, user fit, uh, identity fidelity to have access to the protect surface. That rule just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So how is the, how are they gonna drop the malware across? Mm-hmm. You know, And even if they come in and plug it in with the USB drive, which everybody always, you know, well, they could bring it in with the US, ubiquitous USB key. How does that malware call out to the command and control mm-hmm. server, because there's no rule allowing unknown software on protect surface PCI to go to an unknown resource on the internet. Mm-hmm. It would just be stopped because what's this? We don't know about it. There's no policy for it. So it becomes very simple when you start looking at it from that perspective.
0: I I really like you said a few things there that I think kind of really resonated with me. And and, and one yeah. was it doesn't really matter about the location of where things are, right? Because I think yeah. we've we've too long we've lived in this world where folks want to hug their infrastructure and go, okay, well, here this is my data center. That's my firewall right over there. That's the thing. That's the gatekeeper, right? But in this, in our cloud world, that really isn't true anymore. We have work from home scenarios. We have folks working from wherever. Um, and I, yeah, that, I, I love that. I love the, the sort of the breakdown of that because um, shrink it by by having an allow, you know, an, an allow surface. I think that that makes that's a it just yeah, it just makes great sense to me. I really, I really like that. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you can invert things, right, the problem statement inverted is a good rule of thumb. The attack mm-hmm. surface, the inversion of that is the protect surface, it's the exact opposite. You've kind of reached in and you pulled it out from the inside out and now, now I don't, I mean, what I found was in a properly built zero trust environment, we didn't have to worry about what's the latest attack because it was irrelevant because there were no rules. I'll, I'll just mm-hmm. tell you a story here from a number of years ago, but it was a, 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 a project that I worked on and the CISO called me and he said, well, I had the penetration test done on the zero trust thing. I'm like, okay, I'm really interested in how this works because I'm a former penetration tester and I kind of know how a lot of that works. And I, I run this all by a bunch of my friends who are pen testers too. And he said, so I had the pen tester try to get in and he couldn't get in the normal ways. Right. And he was very frustrated. He said, okay, I need a domain credential. (laughs) Sure. I'll give you a domain credential. He gave him a domain credential, but because there was no policy attached to that domain credential, he didn't have access to anything. And the pen tester finally got really frustrated. He said, I can't go anywhere. What are you trying to do? Make me look bad. And the CISO said, yes, yes, I am. That's my job. Yes, Policy. Uh, or users that don't have a policy attached to them can't do anything on the network, right? Mm-hmm. And what we do typically is we validate the user and then we give them access to everything. So Snowden and Manning, mm-hmm. the two famous names, most famous names, I call them uh, the Beyonce and the Rihanna of cybersecurity, right? They're They're one-word people. And yet they were trusted users on trusted devices. They had robust identity systems and powerful but cumbersome multi-factor authentication, mm. but nobody looked at their packets post authentication and they gave them access to everything on this super secret network that they should have never had access to in the first place. So a few, uh, two years ago, I was going through a process of getting my clearance for the government and, and it was, a, you know, it's just a, a pain and everybody seems to want that they they feel like it's a badge of honor and i said to them am i ever going to need to have access to any of your data to do this this work for you and they said well no i said well then we're in violation of the first principle of zero trust don't give people access to data they don't need to do their job and i'm not going to go get my clearance they're like they never had anybody say i don't want a clearance i'm like no because that's a violation of this this idea that is my life, that that you don't give people access to things they don't need to, in order to do their job. And if One. you look at it from that perspective, like in my job now, I have I have a need for very little access, right? And they gave me, give me great access to the things I need. I need to be able to book travel, do expense reports, make PowerPoint presentations, and write blog posts. I mean, that's kind of my life, right? Yes. So I don't need access to the financials or anything like that, or, you know, I mean, why would they ever give that to me? They shouldn't, and they don't. And that's the right answer to the question. So, yeah, I mean,
0: absolutely. And, and one of the things you talked about, um, John, and you've, you've used this word a few times now is journey, right? And obviously we, we, we always think of, or we Nick and I like to think of zero trust as a journey for an organization it's 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 never complete it's always something that they're kind of working on but you yourself have also had uh, you know obviously a fascinating journey we talked about forrester we talked about arlo um uh do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and and some of the research that you've been involved with um more yeah
2: yeah i mean there's a couple of of things that i'm doing right now so first of all i'm the chief evangelist at illumio which is a company that i've known since they started uh in 2013 to do Mm micro-segmentation for zero trust. So of course it's called zero trust micro-segmentation. And I'm really coming back to the roots of of what I said in 2010 in build security into your network's DNA. And in there I said, all modern networks must be segmented by default. That's just, you know, if you have a flat network, you may pay the bills, but the attackers own it, right? And I know that from pen testing. I Flat networks, that was like, Oh, man, that that was a gourmet meal for us. And so uh, I wanted to come back to that because I wanted everybody saying, well, you just need identity, 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 identity. Identity is something that is consumed as a signal in policy in a zero trust policy, but it doesn't really enforce ever, anything. And it's hugely broken, in my opinion. So I want to take some of that narrative back so that people can actually get real things done, start by segmenting your network so that you can put these protect surfaces in a way uh, that that keeps them uh from you know the rest of the attack surface right yeah. and then we'll use identity signals to determine the policy but it's yeah. it's consumed it's not equal to zero trust and so that's why i came there and then the other thing that i do is i'm an advisor to uh to the Cloud Security Alliance, I yeah. advise them on their on their Zero Trust Working Group, and uh, work with uh, Jim, the CEO, and Alina, the president, on a lot of different things. Give speeches for them, help write research, help kind of guide a lot of the research that they're doing because it's a huge, wonderful volunteer organization yeah. with a tremendous number of contributors who are really passionate about this. But sometimes they'll they'll hear something. You know from the playground and i'll say well that's not really true let's kind of re-engage with that so it's super fun to kind of help educate uh a, a new generation of people and we've come out with uh, a cczt curriculum uh for a certification of competency in zero trust from the cloud security alliance you can go out and get that certification and i'm actually uh zt Z, cczt number one so i have the first. First uh, of those certifications. That's wonderful, and that's my I, only certification that I have. Everything else I've given up over the years.
1: Yes, I'm a proud NT4 M CSE, and then uh, I became a Microsoft Certified Master, and that died. And uh, since then, it was like it was the hardest thing I've ever done. So after that, I'm kind of done with certifications for a while as well.
2: At, at some point in your career, you don't need those to get through the gatekeepers at HR. This is true, Sorry. yeah.
1: So you told us earlier that you're still researching. Aren't we done with zero trust?
2: Um, are you done living? Are you done breathing? What a great answer. I mean, you're never done with it. In fact, one of the things about a zero trust system, it is that as you look at the signals, uh, you can take all those signals, all that telemetry, the logs, everything, and, and we would define those as stressors, and you can re-inject it back into the system to build things out. You get visibility in terms of how you can uh, make things more mature uh, over time. So the I need to do, add something to the protect surface. I need to change a policy. I need a different kind of control to be added to this, whatever it is. And this makes Zero Trust an anti-fragile system. So, if you know of the book Anti-Fragile by uh, Taleb, the guy who wrote Black Swan, he gave me the vocabulary to talk about what I've been trying to create in Zero Trust, which is the idea that, that a system under load can adapt and get stronger, right? If you think about, um, yeah. I, I need to lose some weight because it's been Christmas and I ate too many pies or whatever, what do you do? You go stress your body out. You, you diet, stressing your body out, making it hungry. You go out and run. Stressing your body out you lift weights, whatever you do. Those are stressors But your body adapts to that and becomes stronger not weaker, right? And so uh, That's what I've been trying to uh, Articulate in zero trust is it is it gets stronger and stronger over time and So articulating that and then the right way to measure that through maturity uh, I built a maturity model uh-huh. and uh, you should also share with your listeners an article I wrote for the Cloud Security Alliance called uh, Understanding the Two uh, Zero Trust Maturity Models. It's about how you use the system maturity model with the original uh, Forrester one that I created back in the day. And uh, I will say that as you build things out one protect surface at a time, you should measure the maturity of that protect surface one at a time. And then out of that, you can send those signals to uh, the pillar model of CISA and see how your entire estate is looking over time. That's amazing. John, we want to respect your time
1: and that we're coming up to the, the, the top of the hour. And I feel like we could have a two-hour episode, but we just can't. So, before we let you go, we'd love to ask you, what is it that you'd like to plug? And that can be absolutely anything. It could be your your LinkedIn URL. It could be some
2: research that you'd like to share. The floor is yours. Well, look, I, I want to plug just the concept of segmenting networks again. We, we flatten them out. And I that's why I came here, because we need to segment these networks. And by the way, there's a network in the cloud, right? Yes. This is one of the misunderstandings. I had to quit saying zero trust networks and I say zero trust environments because I would have people angry at me. Well, I don't have a network, I'm in the cloud. And I remember one conversation with someone and I said, well, but there's a network in the cloud. No, there's not. There's no networks in the cloud. Said, hmm, pretty sure there's networks in the cloud. They have switches and routers. No, 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 they don't, okay. And then uh, then this person said, they don't even have servers. And I said, oh, really? Uh, uh, and they said, yes. Haven't you heard of serverless? The way they said it oh, to me, wow. like, you moron, haven't you heard of serverless? I said, yes, I have ser- heard of serverless. Uh, where do you think they store the data then? Oh, it's stored in DNA. Okay. Oh, wow. Good. Uh, Well, you've been watching a lot of Black Mirror or something, right? I mean, I don't know where you're getting that stuff from, but there are networks in the cloud and they work exactly as the networks that you have on premise. The cloud is someone else's hypervisor, right? And, uh, you know, Linus Torvalds should be the richest person in the world because he created Linux, which led to all these innovations. And without him, we wouldn't have this stuff. But at the same time, you you know that, that is the good thing because it means that the protect surface is independent of the compute and the infrastructure. We don't care where it's located, but it still needs to be segmented away from everything else so that only authorized users in authorized circumstances through specific allow-only policies can get access to that resource. And that core technology that does that is called segmentation. And that's why I came to Illumio. Wonderful.
1: John, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I'd I'd love to have, I think we could have a show for um, a number of the things that you've said separately, just to unpack those, because there's so much depth in all of them, Mm. including where to start, where to finish, where to measure. But we would never get off the show. So... Well,
2: well, we'll follow up with some other shows in uh, 2024, right?
0: Yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you on again.
2: Well, let's do it. Awesome.
0: Yeah, I agree. Thank you very much. It's very uh, very informative, um, uh, and it's a gr- just a great way to unpack some of these concepts, right? Mm. I think a lot of people are scared off by yeah. some of these things, and, and when you're able to just lay it out in the, the way that you just have, yes. um, it makes a lot more sense, and I think it's going to resonate a lot better with a lot of folks.
1: Agree. Unnecessarily afraid.
2: Yes. Well, thank you, uh, Chris and Nick, for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Chris, are you staying in the U.S. through the holiday? Or, Yeah, yeah. heading back just after Thanksgiving. Okay. Well, have a happy Thanksgiving and uh, safe travels back to Australia. I'm from Texas, and I consider Australia to be the Texas of the South Pacific, because everybody's super friendly and they barbecue a lot.
0: That's uh, very spot on, actually. I um, I actually spent some time living in Texas myself, and uh, I actually once had someone say to me, "It's like, you came from Australia and you picked the most Aussie place to live in the United States. There you go. Well, there you go. So <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, I'm looking forward to some football this weekend and uh, you know, on Friday anyway, and uh, hopefully some turkey on Thursday. So we'll see there you next. go. Okay. Thank you, John. Great to meet you. And thank you again for your time.
2: Thank you, everyone. Appreciate it. Hey,
0: everyone. Before you go, we just wanted to say thank you for listening. We really enjoy putting this podcast together for you every two weeks. Please visit us at thearchitects.cloud or alternatively drop us a tweet. We'd love to hear what you have to say. At the Cloud